0: I will admit to being a little nervous that the choir was going to sit back there the whole time that I was preaching. (laughs) I know some preachers do it, I I just don't know how, right? (laughs) If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it. We're in in Psalm chapter 2 this morning. When, when tragedy happens in the world, there's always the question of how to respond, right? We live in a responding culture, um, that if, if a response is not given, then the assumption is a lack of care, a hardness. When uh, tragedy happens that's even closer to home, it makes it a little more real in that regards. And so this week, um, as we, as, as your church staff and your elders, we're just reflecting on uh, the tragedy in Nashville, real for us for a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, your former interim pastor, David O'Dowd, was the interim pastor at Covenant. Um, yeah, there are a lot of connections, a lot of connections not the least of which being the fact that it's part of our covenant family in the PCA. Um, and yet, uh, this is also Palm Sunday. And, and so the question is then, what do we, what do we, how do we do this? And I think the beautiful thing about what we celebrate on Palm Sunday is that it's part of the longing for a king. And isn't that what our real response is when tragedy like that happens? And we have to sit and think, like, why? Won't someone do something about this? The answer is yes, someone will. And that's what today is about. So, if you have your place in Psalm 2, um, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'll be reading all of Psalm 2, but don't freak out, it's only 12 verses. This is God's word. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the word of the Lord given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, have mercy on us. As we um, come under the, the authority of your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, to move in us, no matter where we're at. We came into this room with lots of different stories today. And some of us are... Rejoicing in faith. Others of us are just barely hanging on to the gospel by our fingernails. Some of us don't even know what that means. So we just ask that you would meet us exactly where we are. You would speak to us and minister to us the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You would transform us, that none of us would leave here without being changed. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, you, I mean, you guys know, like, our, our relationship in this country to authority is ambivalent at best. We don't like it. Unless, of course, that believe, whatever the authority of the day is believes what we believe, we, we don't like it. And even then, we tend to hold it in suspicion, right? I mean, they are in power, after all. Anyone in power we've grown to be suspicious of, and not for bad reason, (laughs) right? We have good reasons for that. We've seen it abused. We've seen story after story after story of someone using their power for their own good, using it against those that they were supposed to serve instead just kind of serving themselves, whether that's in the government, in the church, in families. And yet... We can't seem to get away from the thought or at least the feeling inside. The longing for a better authority. It shouldn't surprise us. The Bible actually speaks over and over and over again uh, about authority, especially kingship, and, and that those things are not foreign to us. It's actually something we were designed for. And so to attempt to get back into what it meant what it was why 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 would a bunch of people line the streets of a of a occupied city laying down their jackets and their clothes and waving palm branches to this dude who's riding in on a donkey which seems really weird but it's actually like it might as well be the presidential you know, uh, motorcade. Why is it that they did that, and why is it that we still want to? We're going to do that in Psalm 2. And so if, if you're an, a note-taker, there's an outline there. We're going to look at the king we need, we're going to look at the king we want, and then we're going to look at the king that we have. Let's start with the king that we need. And when I say king, already, some of us get uncomfortable because we are American. And as Americans, we are supposed to, in principle, be opposed to kings. And yet, who is more fascinated with royalty than Americans? <laughs> I am pretty sure, don't you raise your hands, that most of y'all been watching the Harry the and... Herian- Thing, we've been watching all the British royal drama, we're picking up the magazines. What's Meghan wearing? What's Kate doing? The Queen died, and we're all like watching the crying at the funeral. Never, it's not our Queen. We spilled blood to say no to that, but we're into it. And if it's not them, it's someone else, right? We treat our celebrities like royalty. Who cares what a film school dropout thinks about the the political policies of the day? We do. They're famous. They played one on TV. They must know something. We even call LeBron James. King James. There's something in us that just greatly desires it. And it's not just us. Think about the stories that we love. I'll just pick two. When Tolkien was writing his great epic, it's entirely based, I mean, there's three, I'm a little bit of a geek, I think there's three different themes woven together, but I think the primary one is about the fact that there is this king in the north, and that king is going to come back and he's going to bring healing in his hands and flourishing to the world and bring everything back to the way it was supposed to be. It was always winter, never Christmas in Narnia until the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve came and took up the thrones in Paravel, And we resonate with it. We resonate with the stories the fairy tales, the Disney movie, like the the king is gone and what happens to the world, right? The Arthurian legend, the king was gone. Somebody's got to pull the sword out of the stone because everything is going to pot. Someone has to fix it. It's like there's a genetic memory in us that says that we're made for a good king, one who's going to come and make things right for us, Here's why. The Bible does argue that that is the case, that we were made for authority. We were made as dependent creatures on a good, wise, and loving ruler. God creates humanity for that dependent relationship with Him. What does that mean? It means we rely on Him for everything, not just our breath. Oh, we did, and you do like that one there, and that one. But for even our understanding of reality, who decides how things work? What is good? What is not? How how is everything supposed to be? But that dependent relationship is not an invitation to passivity. You see, in Genesis, when God created everything, he created humanity to have dominion, which is to say to extend his rule to extend his rule throughout. And then that dominion didn't mean abuse, and it didn't mean exploitation. It meant, it meant the kind of rule that God would have, one that sees it flourish. Why? Because he loves it. He created it. And after God creates all these things, he tells Adam and Eve that they can eat of any tree, right, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you and I tend to think... <laughs> That there was something magical in that fruit. We we tend to think that because that's what the snake said. God never said that, by the way. snake said, there's something magical in this, when you eat it, you're going to become like God. But in fact, it was a point of testing. It was a place of testing. Will you rely on me, humanity? Will you depend on me to be your ruler? To be the one who helps you understand the way things are? Will you go f- try and figure it out yourself? We were made for authority. We were made for someone else to tell us what's up, right? We're made for authority. We're made to exercise authority, which means that we were made to be under authority, but to be also in authority. Which means that authority, in and of itself, is not the result of sin. It's not the result of brokenness. It's what we were made for. Its abuses are the result of brokenness. The ways in which it harms is the result of brokenness. But that is because things changed. The story doesn't end with God telling us to go, be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion. It We rejected his authority. We wanted to become our own. And and this isn't just like some kind of protest. Because we weren't made for subjugation. We're made for relationship. The entire story of the Bible is how we have turned away, not just from a ruler, but from a father. And how that father now is working as the rightful ruler of the world to restore his rule over rebellious creation, namely us. Why am I talking about all that? Because that's the backstory to Psalm 2. That's the backstory. This psalm was probably something that would have been sung on Coronation Day for those in the Davidic throne. And it was meant to constantly be pointing somewhere else because eventually, it, it after God's people lost their kingship, it became the, the way in which they, they prayed and sang and longed for someone who would come and make things right. So let's dig into that. Let's look at the king we want. Look there at verses 1 to 3 to see our rage. Look at the language this psalm uses. Rage, plot, setting themselves, bursting bonds, casting away cords. What's going on here? Well, basically it's this. The psalmist, and that's the way you talk about someone who writes a psalm, a psalmist. I'm not really sure what else we could have come up with, but that seemed good enough. The psalmist. What the psalmist is trying to get across is our stance towards God. Because when we turn away from God way back, when we turned away from him, We were changed. Like I said, you and I were made to be under his authority, but we changed. We became bent away from him, turned away, not wanting to be with him. And you don't have to teach anyone this. It's inborn. We became rebels, not by our actions, but by our nature. And you can see that happening in the story. Think back to the garden again. Eve eats the fruit, nothing happens. Adam eats the fruit, and everything changes. Everything changes. Just as an aside, guys, I hate to tell you this. Actually, I don't. I really do like to tell you this. Um, And when I say guys, I mean men specifically. You are responsible. I know this is not popular. I know that many of us would rather go play video games. We would rather goof off. But we see it here and we see it throughout the Bible. If you're married, listen, she may be smarter than you. She may be more gifted than you. But it doesn't matter. In God's economy, you are the responsible one. It doesn't mean you have authority to abuse and do all this stuff, but you are responsible. One day I'll flesh that out more. I hope to. So everything changes. And then God comes in the garden in the cool of the day, this beautiful picture of how God pursue, pursues us even in, his, in our rebellion. And Adam is hiding in the bushes and God says, Adam, where are you? And when he says, Adam, where are you? He's not doing it because he doesn't know where Adam is. It's Like, I can't see through the bushes. Where is he? Like, it's not, he's doing that as an invitation. Adam, where'd you go? Our, come on, this is our time. Where are you at? But Adam, when he comes out, says, I was afraid of you. To which God says, why? Did you eat of the fruit? And Adam says, like every dude still does, the woman you gave me handed me the fruit and I ate. Do you see the accusation? There's two in there. One, the one that we all chuckle about, is to his wife. But the bigger one is to God. The woman you gave me, this is on you, bro. I I was doing just fine, named all these animals, we were hanging, and then you gave me this woman, I don't know what happened. Suddenly there's a fruit and it's in my mouth, I don't know. We rage at God's authority over us. And this is why we have, all of us, and, and our culture is huge on this, we have these different visions of God, these different images of God that we come up with. We call them God to me. I love God to me. You know, God to me is, is like this, uh, this force of goodness, which, is, which means that God isn't a person who expects anything. Or God to me is like is, is kind of this kindly old grandfather Who just loves people no matter what, they they just really doesn't care what anyone does. Just loves everybody, which means God doesn't really care enough about me to pay attention, and he certainly doesn't want the best for me. The Bible's view though is that God is a person, He's a person who thinks and feels and desires. He creates us for Himself. He creates us and designs us to flourish in a relationship with Him. And what it's in, what's interesting about this particular passage is the way it talks about our rage, or uh, about who our rage is against, rather. Verse two, it says, the, king, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, okay? So first of all, this definitely has this like, geopolitical flair to it. I don't wanna get apart from that. We are talking about worldly rulers, okay? Heads of state, in that time, kingdoms. But the other thing they're raging against is this, this concept of the Lord and his anointed. And when you see the Lord, the word Lord, all in capital letters in your English Bible, what that is, is a translation of a Hebrew word, a specific Hebrew word. The Hebrew word of God's covenant name, the name that he gave Moses. Who, who am I supposed to t- say sent me when I go to Pharaoh? Who am, I, who am I supposed to tell the Hebrews that sent me? I mean there's lots of gods, who are you? God declares his name, right? It's the name that is attached, not just, it's not just like this, it's not just another word for God, it's the name that God's covenant people have and use. In other words, it's attached to his story of rescue. It's specifically about his rescue plan. In other words, this is not Generic rage against a generic God. This is specific rage against a specific God. The covenant making, covenant keeping, God who created all things. Because you see, God didn't leave us in our rebellion. He determined to rescue us from it. He had every right to just judge us and move on. But instead, out of his grace... Which, which is a churchy word. It just means unmerited favor. He, he instead, he chose to rescue us. And he did so by entering into this promise-bound relationship, this thing we call a covenant. And he revealed his name as the Lord. Yahweh. What we always translate in the, in the Old Testament as Lord with capital letters. So when they are raging against God, we need to understand that they are raging against the God who has been wronged and yet has promised to make things right. Okay? The rage is against God and his anointed. And now, that is not a word we use at all. But in the Old Testament, that's the way you talked uh, specifically about the king. They were the anointed. Now, there was a bunch of different things in, in the Old Testament. You would get anointed to be a prophet, you get anointed to be a priest, and you get anointed to be a king. Specifically in this one, Um, This is having to do with his king, the one who would bring God's wise rule to the world. Restore us to what we were made for. But the point is, is that we rage against this. Now, there's two ways I want want us to view that. The first is the wide-angle lens. This is the lens of political realities. I know some of us get nervous when any preacher starts talking about political realities, but but trust me, this is a little different than what you expect. This passage points to the fact that you have these political powers that seek to vie for power. They're defining what is right. They're defining uh, what is good. They're doing it based on their own agendas. They're doing it based on their own self-understanding, and it is legitimized through their might. Right? This passage certainly speaks to that. The second lens is the more narrow one that looks to the individual. Because you see, the reason that nations do that is because we do, right? It's not like the nation, the the governments and powers and rulers take on a kind of character of their own apart from the people who are running them. We do that. That's broken because we are. Uh, if you're a philosophy uh, nerd, there's, there's a philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. And one of the things he called it is this terrible freedom. And it was a terrible freedom was our, uh, our desire to kind of self-actualize, to create our own meaning. And he called it terrible because it's a burden. It's a weight. If you have to create your own meaning for yourself, how do you bear up under that? He would say that we have to. We've got to define reality and meaning for ourselves. In other words, I call the shots. I'm beholden to no one. I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul, right? This is why we hate this. On the one hand, we rage against authority, and on the other hand, we tend to rage against uh, we, we rage against, when we have it, we rage against the responsibility of it. We want an authority. We want a boss. We want a king. We just want one who's going to do everything that we would do and so that when he messes up, we don't have to take responsibility for it. He'll do everything that we think is good, but then when it goes bad, we can go, idiot. That allows us to never be challenged and to also shift blame. But you can't have it both ways. And that's where the rage comes from. Now look at how God responds. Look down at verses 4 to 6. He laughs. That's encouraging, right? (laughs) He just laughs. Why? Why does he laugh? It's simple. God is God. And we are not. He has life in himself. We get it. From plants. He needs nothing. If we stop breathing too long, we die. He sees all things at all times, in all moments, with all perspectives. I need plastic lenses on my eyes to see past my nose. God is the creator, we are the created. He spun the universe into existence. And most of us in this room can't even spin a basketball on our finger. That is the difference. We can rage all we want, friends, but it doesn't change anything. Reality is not ours to define. God is God, and we are not. Now, verses 5 to 6 are where the clincher is, though. God says, I have set my king on Zion. Now, here's what that means. The Bible is clear that we are all by nature in rebellion against God, but that he, is also, he would also establish his kingdom and his king who would set the world right and deal with that rebellion one way or another. Christianity's claim, of course, is that that is exactly what God has done in Jesus. That is exactly what he's done in Jesus. And this is what you can see with all these people who are waving palms as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. What they're expecting is finally the king is here. And he's going to take care of all this stuff for us. Yeah, get rid of these Romans. Hate them. They tax us. They abuse us. Don't like them. He's going to do stuff the way we want him to. Oh, It'll be nice for a change. Finally have someone who's doing stuff we want him to do. That's, that's who they thought Jesus was. And he was. Just not the way they thought. Now, That's why, the way in which God states this is here in verse 6, and it's really important. He says, as for me, I've set my king in Zion on my holy hill. You see, Christianity, the central message of Christianity is called good news, right? The gospel, good news. It's not good advice. Good advice, you take or leave. Good advice, you say, I mean, whatever, I don't really need that right now, I'm doing just fine, thank you. News is something you have to reckon with. You have to do something with it. You may go, I don't believe that. That's fine. That's one option to news. Or you go, yeah, that's fake news. Or, okay, yeah, that's really really what's happening. That's really what's going on. And news is something objective. It means it's real whether you believe it or not. Right? I know we want to pretend that we can play fast and loose with history, but... Here's the reality that's not in serious dispute. There's a guy that named, Je- named Jesus who lived. He made claims that have been recorded and established about himself. He was killed by Romans, and then three days later, his body was gone, and his forlorn, humiliated, and defeated followers were suddenly out in the streets, proclaiming him as the risen king of the world and the fulfillment of the story of the Bible. Apart from everything they had ever been taught, You may choose not to believe it, to claim it doesn't apply to you, but the Bible would argue that this is kind of like standing on a railroad train, a railroad track saying, I don't really believe in trains. train doesn't care. God laughs. But that isn't good news, is it? So what makes the news good? Well, that deals with the king we have. Look down at verses 7 and 9. The covenant God says, you are my son, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, what does that mean? And what is it about all this breaking with iron stuff? Again, the fact that the, that the guy who's writing this psalm used the name, used the word Lord is super important because God made the promise that he would deal with this stuff, that he would take care of our rebellion, And this is answered in Jesus. The New Testament consistently points to these verses. Psalm 2. These verses to talk about Jesus and his work. See, Jesus comes and he's hailed as king at his birth. At his very birth. Hailed as king. But doesn't come into that until much later. He comes onto the scene. He goes into the Jordan. He's anointed king. And as soon as he is... The heavens are rent open, Mark tells us, and there's a voice that comes from heaven. It says, you are my son. Psalm 2. You're my son. In you, I'm well pleased. And then, Jesus starts going into the world and he starts pushing back darkness, right? He heals sickness. He raises people from death. He takes the ostracized and brings them into community. He takes the guilty and says, your sins are forgiven. It's like darkness is just being annihilated everywhere he goes. But he also says that to be part of his kingdom we have to be reconciled to God. And that will mean placing our faith in him and not ourselves. Trusting in him, not us. And so what he's doing, even as he's, war- uh, as he's riding on that donkey into Jerusalem, is he's calling these crowds to give up on their vision. Give up on your understanding of what I must be. And instead trust in what I who I am and eventually later that week that did not sit well we rage we rage because we're rebels (laughs) we rebel because we're rebels not the other way around so Jesus went to the cross he went to the cross to be dashed to pieces To be destroyed with a rod of iron. To take the death that rebels deserved. To take the punishment that rebels deserved so that he might reconcile us to God and return us to the kingdom he was made for. But let's not be fooled. The very last book of the Bible picks up this language right here and uses it to talk about when Jesus will return and how he will engage with those who have not turned from themselves to trust in him. Revelation 19, verse 15, uses this very image talking about him returning to finally putting an end to sin and rebellion. Look at me. I know not everyone in this room believes what I'm saying. I know that some of us, the idea of God, the idea of a God who's in authority just grabs us like this. And the normal way that a preacher is supposed to handle this is by, by, by kind of going, "Oh, it's really, it's okay." Listen, I understand your rage. I feel it too at times. But when we stand up and we say, "I'm going to show you God," he just laughs. The only one we're really hurting is ourselves. We're like that little kid holding his breath in the corner to show mom and dad. This is not a fight. <laughs> this is not an actual threatening rebellion. Don't confuse God's patience and compassion with that. We can either be judged in Jesus and be rescued, or we can face our judgment before God, but we cannot get beyond his reign. The ends of the earth are his possession so what should be our response look down at verses 10 to 12 the psalmist says to serve him with humility or fear and to uh, rejoice with awe well what does that mean namely this that laughing god who can seem so cruel when we think about that that's really mean you're up there laughing at us he owes us nothing But he gives us everything. He owes us nothing. We are rebels, but he offers us everything. Everything. We are to serve him, which means to return to him as our our authority with humility. This is because we return to a place of dependence, knowing that we are not God and cannot be, and we rejoice with awe. Listen. Imagine that you lived under a king, and you were a rebel and a terrorist, right? We would probably use the word freedom fighter, but that's the other word for terrorist, so let's just go with terrorist. You're captured, but the king not only pardons you, but out of kindness makes you an heir to his throne. What's your response to that? You just kind of go, all right, great. Let me go find my gun and pick this battle up again. Or do you rejoice? You were you at his mercy, you were at his power. And he said, you don't understand, be with me and you get to be the heir. I'm not only gonna forgive you, that would be good enough. Forgiveness would be awesome. I'm not just gonna forgive you. I'm gonna delight in you. You're gonna be one of my kids. You will have everything that my kingdom has to offer. It will all be yours. Don't you just give up the rebellion? That's what this is talking about. And then he says to kiss the sun. Some of of your translations will say do homage, pay homage. And that's really what it means. It means to honor him as king. So let's get real practical. What does it mean to honor Jesus as your king? If if you're a Christian here this morning, this is really important. If you're not, if you're thinking about it, I think this is important to understand too. First, honoring Jesus as your king means that you're going to let Jesus wash your feet. John chapter 13, one of the early gospels, uh, Jesus tells Peter, he goes to wash his feet, and Peter Peter gets upset. He's like, whoa, no, 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 no. You should not, you of all people should not be washing my feet. And listen, it's not just because feet are gross. They are gross. Uh, But it's also because when you wear sandals all day long and you're walking in an agrarian society, your feet get really gross. And Peter's like, you shouldn't be touching this. Jesus says, if you don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. What this means is dumping our pride and acknowledging that we need Jesus to be right before God. We need his perfect life because ours isn't. We need his sin-bearing death so that we won't have to. We need to see that this is purely out of grace and not something we've earned. We have to let him wash our feet. That acknowledges his lordship. Second, means believing what he says. Um, in John chapter 8, Jesus says that um, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not our totem. If you, if you think you're following Jesus, but Jesus never challenges you, and I don't mean challenges you with like, I'm not yet good enough at all the things I think are important. I mean, he challenges you. Like, he looks at you and you go, these things that you don't care about, you don't, no, no, no. This is important. This thing that you don't think is that big a deal that you do, no, no, no. I care about this. This needs to change. If Jesus never challenges you, if if it's never something that you're like, whoa, something just got rocked in me, then can I suggest you might not be following Jesus. You might be following you dressed up in a Jesus suit. So it means believing what he says. It means letting him wash your feet. Third, it means obedience. In Luke 6, Jesus asks, Why call me Lord and not do what I say? As soon as we begin to talk about obedience, the problem is, because we're Protestant, we immediately link it with merit. And we go, wait a minute, everything's by grace, Rick. I'm not talking about earning your place with God. I'm talking about whether or not you are following Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus without following Jesus. If he's going this way, and you're going this way, and you're like, I'm following He's back out of there going, whoa, whoa, where are you at? You can't follow Jesus without following Jesus. And listen, sometimes, no, most of the time, this is not culturally popular. But our king is not public or popular opinion. Our king is not public morality. One more thing on that. Obedience to Jesus does not just happen in the church. Did you notice what Psalm 2 says, that the the son was promised? I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Not the little building inside every community I will give you. And there will your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, no, no. The nations throughout the world Uh, There's a, a Dutch Reformed theologian by the name of Abraham Kuyper who famously said that there is not one square inch on the earth over which Jesus does not right now declare mine. Obedience to our king does not just mean personal piety. It doesn't. It means that. It cannot mean less than that, but it doesn't just mean that. It has an impact on public policy. It has an impact on society. It's not just individual salvation. It does have to do with societal transformation. Does that mean that, Rick, are you saying we're gonna accomplish some kind of utopia? No, of course not. Not till Jesus comes back. Like I can't, I told you, you get sinners involved in any system and they become, they end up messing things up. But we must also hold that our faithful and have an impact in how we work, how we neighbor how we do everything, or it's no faith at all. Lastly, it means worship. In John chapter 9, after Jesus heals this guy born blind, the guy begins worshiping him. I want you to think about that. That We take that for granted. This is a Jewish guy who every day got up and recited the Shema, probably multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And here this guy is worshiping Jesus. And Jesus, this great Jewish rabbi, does not stop him. It's the appropriate response. Not only because of what Jesus does for us, but because of who he is. He is the God that we've offended. He is. He is the ruler we rebelled against, but he's also the one who took the treasonous death we deserved because he loved us. And if someone does that for you, the only logical response is to say, You are now the most important thing in my life. That's what worship is. I'm now going to place you in a position of ultimacy. You will now be ultimate. We hail him as king this Sunday. Today, because of what we're going to celebrate next Sunday his resurrection from the dead, putting sin, death, and hell forever away. And we worship him for that piece of that foretaste of the thing that is also coming that day when he will come and there will be no more shootings. There will be no more putting babies in the ground. There will be no more putting sons and daughters in the ground. There will be no more feeling guilt because of our failures as parents. There will be no more tears because our King has come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, may it be. May it be that our hearts return to the one who is our ruler, and yet does not rule us with anger or crazy authority, but rules us with love, with compassion, and for our good. Let us never forget, Jesus, that you know way more about our good than we do. And in remembering that, Lord, let us delight in your rule. Give us faith to trust you. We don't have it. We need it, so give us faith. Help our unbelief to trust you in all things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.